Please join me in prayer. Great God of all love, we come to you now as we are, with a mixture of experiences and emotions, some happy, some sad. We come to you now in honesty and ask that we will know that you meet us here. We recognize that today many will be celebrating Father's Day. We bring to you now how that makes us feel. We think of those of us who are missing a loving parent and grieving the loss. For those for whom this day is hard. We think of those of us for whom the concept of the father is not a positive one. And we also think of those of us for whom today is a day of thanks and happiness, perhaps due to the gift of a child or a grandchild. We bring this all before you now in honesty and ask that you will open our hearts to your love and to the longer and deeper truths that you have yet to reveal. As we look back on the last week, we ask for your forgiveness where forgiveness is needed, for the times when we have hurt others and even hurt ourselves. May we know the renewing of our minds and may we find you, you, your healing. And so we now dedicate the rest of this service to you. May wisdom and truth take us by the hand and lead us in discovering new paths of peace. And so we pray together the prayer which Jesus taught his disciples. Loving God in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. I'm reading from Amos chapter 5, verses 6 and 7 and 10 to 15. Seek the Lord and live, or he will break out against the house of Joseph like fire and it will devour Bethel with no one to quench it. Are you that turn justice to wormwood and bring righteousness to the ground? They hate the one who approves in the gate, and they abhor the one who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and take from them levies of grain, you have, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not live in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and push aside the needy in the gate. Therefore the prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you, just as you have said, hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. The second reading is from Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 27. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not defraud, 
honour your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these since my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go, sell what you own, and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were perplexed at these words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. They were greatly astounded and said to one another, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, For mortals it is impossible, but not for God. For God all things are possible. One of the uh, recurring themes of um, British political discourse are discussions on the gap between the rich and the poor and on the ways in which the rich might or might not be appropriately taxed in order to preserve things like the social care budget that protects those at the bottom end of the social spectrum. And I've long had an interest in how we might, as Christians, help our society do ethical things with money. Um, I mentioned this briefly in last week's sermon when we were looking at how Christianity might bring healing to the sickness that so often affects the global markets in the world, the global financial markets. Uh, and I mentioned that Bloomsbury are working uh, on an ethical shopping policy uh, as an extension of our already existing fair trade policy that we'll be hopefully bringing uh, for discussion and approval at the July church meeting. How can we do good things with the money that we have in the name of the God that we worship? Well, our passage for this morning from Mark's Gospel takes us right to the heart of Jesus's thinking on issues of wealth, economics and justice. In these verses from Mark chapter 10, we meet a very rich man who is wrestling with some profound questions about eternal life. And in this, I suspect he's not alone. There are numerous examples of good people who also have a lot of money. Uh, in the news just this week um, is that billionaire Mackenzie Scott, the ex-wife of Amazon founder Jeff Bezos, has just donated another £1.9 billion to a range of charities. And uh, Ms Scott has said in a blog post accompanying this latest donation that she wanted to give the money to those who have been historically underfunded or, and overlooked. And she is one of the world's richest women, much of her fortune coming from her 2019 divorce from Mr. Bezos, who's currently the world's richest man. In 2019, Mackenzie Scott signed the giving pledge, promising to give away most of her fortune. And this giving pledge has been around for about 11 years now. It's a commitment by some of the world's richest individuals and families to donate the majority of their wealth uh, into giving back. It was started by Bill and Melinda Gates and Warren Buffett in 2010, and other signatories include the likes of Star Wars creator George Lucas, although not as yet Jeff Bezos himself. Well, not everyone who has money is bad or evil or compromised. And there are many people who have money 
who also try and manage to live good lives. And this rich man who comes to Jesus in Mark's gospel would, I think, have liked to think of himself as good with money. A bit like the old co-op bank slogan, where they used to claim to be good with money with a clever double meaning, emphasising that not only do they intend to be good with money in terms of being able to invest wisely and get a good set of returns on investments, but also that they would use their money to do good. Being good and having money, being good with money. Well, we all know how it worked out for the co-op with their infamous Crystal Methodist scandal, but I wonder whether our rich man from, am I allowed to say that? Whether our rich man from Mark's gospel will fare any better. Yes, he has money, but clearly he also wants to be good. And so he comes to Jesus who has been traveling around, preaching a message of good news and newness of life encouraging people to live lives of eternal value and to consider their lives from heaven's perspective. And so this, this rich man comes to Jesus. Good teacher, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And in response, Jesus gives him a stock Jewish answer and lists six of the Ten Commandments. Interestingly, Jesus misses out the first four theological commandments, citing only the, the, last, the latter six, the ethical ones. This man's issue is not, it seems, to do with his belief in God. He doesn't need to be told to you know, worship the Lord your God above all else. He needs the ethical stuff. His issue is to do with behaviour. It's to do with how his belief works itself out in his practice. And in fact, Jesus actually changes uh, one of the commandments. Um, in the list of 10 commandments in Exodus 20, the final one is, you shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. But Jesus changes this in the list that he gives to the rich man. He changes it to, you shall not defraud, which is actually not a command from the 10 commandments it's from leviticus 19:13 which reads you shall not defraud your neighbor you shall not steal and you shall not keep for yourself the wages of a laborer until morning so jesus kind of cobbles together some bits from the 10 commandments and one from somewhere else to speak perhaps quite specifically to this rich young man's situation. With this little deft bit of editing, Jesus is revealing that he's more interested in how this man became affluent than he is in any kind of pious theological inquiry about eternal life. The temptation, you see, facing this rich man isn't about coveting the wealth of others, he doesn't need to hear that commandment. He's already got great wealth. He doesn't need other people's wealth. Poor people might struggle with coveting. Rich people, perhaps less so. Other people are coveting his possessions, not the other way around. Rather, his particular problem seems to be to do with the acquisition of wealth at the expense of those less fortunate than himself. Jesus says, don't defraud your neighbour. Why did he need to hear that particular message? Maybe that tells us a little bit about where this man's wealth has come from. And then let's return to the way in which this rich young man phrased his question to Jesus. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
Well, it seems this rich young man seems to think that eternal life is something he can inherit. It seems that he is of the opinion that eternal life, perhaps like his wealth and property, can just be inherited, passed on from your ancestors. And like many who find themselves the inherited beneficiaries of socioeconomic systems, he sees the benefits of religion, eternal life in, in this case, as a mere reproduction of his own inherited class entitlement. He's already inherited wealth, and now he wants to inherit the eternal life, to which he believes he is entitled by virtue of privileged birth. In the first century context of Palestine, the basis of wealth in those days was predominantly land. They didn't have a stock market buying and selling shares, but they did own property and land. And the primary mechanism for the growth of wealth in the first century was the acquisition of more land, uh, primarily through the debt defaulting of small agricultural landholders. So smaller people would get into debt, you would foreclose on the debt, you'd get their land. So the rich get richer and the poor gets poorer. It's a common story. The mechanisms by which it works out change from century to century sometimes, but it, it's the same thing. The socioeconomic system of Jesus' time into which this encounter with a rich young man is set was one of haves and have-nots, with the rich growing richer, the poor getting poorer, and the gap between the two getting wider with each generation. So the landed classes took great care to protect their entitlement from generation to generation, to ensure that their inheritance was protected. And so the rich man asks Jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life, along with the wealth that he has already inherited as a member of the landed wealthy inherited classes. And Jesus tells him, that he should not participate in the defrauding of others out of what is theirs, in his ongoing possession and acquisition of wealth. Jesus, interestingly, doesn't directly dispute the man's somewhat improbable contention that he has kept the whole law since his youth, even though it flies in the face of Jesus' own assertion that there's no one good but God alone. Rather, Jesus looks at the man and loves him for trying whilst then delivering the hardest truth of all. You lack one thing, he says to the man who has everything. What the man lacks is forgiveness. This rich man has a debt to repay. He is indebted to the poor who have been defrauded down the generations so that he may inherit his great wealth. He may not have himself personally been doing the defrauding, although he may, but if he's inherited vast wealth in the first century, his dad or his grandfather or his great-grandfather along the way have collected debts from tenants and that's how that family have got so wealthy. So go, pleads Jesus, sell what you own and give the money to the poor. Repay the debt that you have inherited along with your wealth. 
This is radical stuff. Jesus is asking the man to do nothing less than dismantle the very system from which he derives his privilege. Because if he gives his money away, or most of it, if he signs the giving pledge of the first century, that he's going to give away his billions by the time he reaches the end of his life, well, then there won't be billions for his children. And the system of inherited wealth and privilege is therefore challenged as money is redistributed from the fabulously wealthy in the benefit of the poor, rather than hoarded for future generations of wealthy elite. What we're seeing here in Jesus' commands to this man to break the system of inherited fortunes is uh, an outworking of the logic of the Old Testament principle of Jubilee. Um, wh whether Jubilee ever actually happened in ancient Israel is one of those things we're not quite sure about. But it, it, it's a principle which says that uh, every 50th year, uh, all land transactions are reset. All land is redistributed back to the families that originally owned it. Anybody who'd sold themselves into slavery is freed. So you could only borrow up to the point at which the next jubilee would happen. So once in a generation, there's a resetting of wealth according to the principle of jubilee. And Jesus is calling on that principle to say to this man, reset, press the reset button. That's how you inherit eternal life. You undo the inherited imbalance that has benefited you. And then Jesus says, come and follow me. This isn't just about asking the man to change his personal attitude towards his wealth, you know, to treat his servants a bit better or reform his personal life. Rather, it is asking him to participate in the overturning of the very system that generated his elite status in the first place. The man gives up and leaves dejected because, Mark tells us, he had many possessions. We can imagine his distress. If he does as Jesus asks, where will that leave his children and the rest of his family? In the context of class inequality, Jesus' message of repentance and redistributive justice is hard to hear for those who are the beneficiaries of the system. The economic model that Jesus is proposing here is one where the wealth does not simply perpetuate and accumulate in the hands of the few as they pass it from generation to generation whilst the poor get poorer. Rather, it's one where the structures are put in place to ensure the flow of money goes down through the social strata as well as up. I think there are echoes of Jesus' challenge to the rich man in the philanthropic pledge that I was talking about earlier, initiated by multi-billionaire Warren Buffett. Now, I'm sure Warren Buffett's kids, I don't know if he has any, but assuming he does, I don't think they're going to be poor in their lives. But what they won't do is inherit the billions upon billions that their dad made. This directly, I think, challenges the rich elite systems of our world. 
So back to the gospel. Mark wants his readers to know that this story means exactly what it says it means. He's, it says it means. And so he has Jesus drive his point home with some absurdist humour. I saw a blog post uh, this week written by a friend of mine uh, talking about is there comedy in the Bible? And I thought, well, there, there's some comedy in our passage for this morning. Children, says Jesus, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. This is a joke. And it's been twisted by commentators, anxious to avoid its sting. Uh, in an interview in the independent newspaper, the born-again Christian rock star Alice Cooper of We're Not Worthy fame, for those of you who remember that particular film, uh, trotted out the old chestnut about the eye of the needle being a gate in the city wall that you could just about get a camel through if you pushed. It just kind of smacked of him trying to justify his own great wealth in the light of his faith. The reality is that Jesus named the largest known animal and the smallest known aperture, precisely to denote the impossibility of the rich entering the kingdom of God with their wealth intact. You cannot take it with you. But you can, of course, leave it all to your kids. And that is what Jesus is challenging with this rich man. He's not having a go at him just because he's got some money. He's challenging a system of inherited privilege that empowers the few and disadvantages the many and keeps the imbalances of society perpetuated down the generations. Anyway, the disciples get that Jesus is saying this is not something that happens in the normal course of events. Rich people do not, in the course of events, enter the kingdom of heaven, and they protest who then can be saved. And to be fair, we might well join them in this question, because we, like them, all too often interpret wealth as a sign of God's favour. Those of us who have inherited Western wealth and privilege and even people at the lower end of the British social system are in global terms wealthy. This is not about making the difference between those who pay higher income tax and those who pay lower income, lower income tax in the UK context. Most of us who are born and brought up in this country in global terms fit the definition of wealthy here because we have inherited a wealth of a country that benefits us. I mean, look at, look at the vaccine rollout. What a fantastic thing. How has that been achieved? Because we have inherited wealth in this country that's allowed it to happen. We benefit from this. We are in a context where church and state have colluded over the centuries to create a version of Christianity that is predominantly educated, privileged and elitist. And those of us who have shaped our thinking have been so anxious that Jesus here might be saying something exclusive or critical about the rich, because we're worried that might be saying something exclusive or critical about us, that we have often missed the fact that this terrifying message is not primarily about the rich at all. It's about the nature of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, says Jesus, is that place and time where there are no longer rich and poor. It is a vision of a society reset, a society done differently. 
It is the place and time where Jubilee is enacted and when the equality of all humans in the eyes of God becomes reality in the lives of all. This is what we pray for. When we said the Lord's Prayer earlier, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, we are praying for that kingdom to begin becoming real in our world. And this vision of the kingdom of God, the place where life eternal is to be encountered, is a place where the rich, by definition, cannot enter with their wealth intact. It's a vision of a genuinely new social order based on economic equality. And Jesus acknowledges that this seems truly impossible. Certainly in a culture and religion of capitalism, such as ours. Any economic model that has been predicated upon redistributive justice has been considered high heresy. And the nightmares associated with totalitarian communism still haunt any such discussions. Just remember the way in which Mr Corbyn was vilified as a communist for some of the policies that he put into the Labour Party manifesto at the last election, which dared to suggest that we might start to redistribute some of the wealth in our country. And yet, churches have been quick to embrace movements such as the Jubilee debt campaign, which has called for the cancellation of the debts owed to the West by heavily indebted poor countries around the globe. Tim, who was a member here for many years, now moved to the West Country, worked for Jubilee Debt Campaign, and I know many of us know all about their campaign for redistribution of wealth at a global scale, and many of us have supported it over the years. The biblical vision of Jubilee is not actually some utopian prescription that has no earthly hope of ever working. Nor is it simply some eschatological hope to be realised only in the hereafter. The biblical vision of Jubilee that is behind Jesus's words to the rich man was intended as a very practical hedge against the inevitable concentration of wealth and privilege in the hands of the few to the detriment of society. The vision of Jubilee redistribution and restitution originates not from social idealism, but from the revealed character of God. The dependent poor were to be released from their debt because the God of Israel was the God who brought Israel out of slavery in Egypt. If you want to know who God is, look at Moses. We were talking about this in our anti-racism meeting on Wednesday night. The God of justice is the God of Moses who leads people from slavery into a place of new hope. This Old Testament vision of a God of justice, a God of jubilee, represents the antithesis of those systems that promote wealth concentration. And Jesus not only insists that redistributive justice is possible, but he implies that without it we cannot speak of the kingdom of God. Mark's portrait of the rich man seems to suggest that he is possessed by his possessions. We might today call this the addiction of affluence. 
Perhaps it is because economic greed is the most difficult and pervasive of human addictions that Mark emphasizes Jesus' love for the rich man. There is no message here of condemnation. This is a message of love. How can this man have life in all its fullness? He can have it by being freed from the addictions of possessions that are consuming him. The love that Jesus has for him speaks truth. Recovery from this addiction will, for the rich man, take the form of reparations. And again, we have spoken about this, haven't we, in our anti-racism series. Can you genuinely be committed to unpicking the social and economic evils of racism that still blight our society, condemning those with black and brown skin colour to worse access to healthcare, to worse access to educational systems. Can we be serious about wanting to challenge that without also taking seriously that the cost of challenging that will have to be met by those who have inherited more advantageous systems in society? Few subjects in the gospel are as difficult for us to address as this one. And the trouble with wealth is that it is just so insidious that we hardly even know how to define it. Do not hear me saying today that if you're one of those people who's had a good job and has earned some money that Jesus is condemning you. That is not what this passage is about. This passage is asking each of us, are you owned by your possessions? Are you committed to seeing the world made better through you using your power and privilege better? And that is a question for each of us. The pursuit of wealth can so easily become one of our primary goals in life unless we take Jesus' counsel seriously. The truth is that if we mean, mean it when we pray the Lord's Prayer, if we mean it when we say your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, then we are committing ourselves to this task of seeing a new social and economic order coming to birth in our midst. And one of the ways we can do this is to ask ourselves about the ways in which wealth exhibits itself in our society. One distinguishing characteristic of wealth is the opportunity to make decisions and choices about the direction of our own lives and the lives of our loved ones. I remember my dad saying to me when I was about 10 that he had thrown away his education. He went to a good school, but he left school at 15 with no qualifications because he didn't work. And dad did not want me to make the same mistake. He said, Simon, get your education because then you will have choices in life. And of course, education is about privilege. That plays out because I lived in a part of the country that had good schools and I was able to get a good education and I've had those choices. So thank you, dad, for that advice. I'm very grateful. How can we ensure that everybody in our society, regardless of whether they live in leafy affluent Kent and can pass their 11 plus and go to a good grammar school, or if they're living in a deprived borough of East London, where frankly there are very few good schools for their kids to go to, how can we unpick that imbalance in our world and do so in the name of Jesus. That is what Jesus is getting at. This is about social transformation. This isn't about personal stuff. We all have to address our personal issues, of course we do, but Jesus has a much bigger goal in mind here. Food, clothing, shelter, recreation, security, the basic human needs. 
how can we ensure in the name of Christ through our actions and the way we use our power and the way we vote and the way we give charitably how can we ensure that those things are equalized across our society I'm reminded of the verse we don't sing anymore from the hymn, All Things Bright and Beautiful. You know the hymn, many of us sang it at school or in Sunday school. All things bright and beautiful, all things great and small, all things wise and wonderful, the Lord God made them all. It's lovely, isn't it? Then we get to the verse, the rich man in his castle, the poor man at his gate. God made them high and lowly and fashioned their estate. This is unacceptable theology. That's why we don't sing it. It is suggesting that if you're wealthy, that's because God blessed you that way. And if you're poor, that's because that's the lot God has given you in life. I don't want to accept that. We do not inherit in God's eyes wealth or poverty. We might do in the world's eyes, but how do we unpick that? Mark's story about the rich man coming to Jesus needs to be interpreted in our times as an invitation to transform the systems and structures that create wealth inequality, that perpetuate poverty and that maintain privilege within our own society and within our own world. It is the invitation to enter the world of politics, to make our voices heard on issues such as international debt relief, the housing crisis, the policies relating to fair and just taxation of the more wealthy, the provision of benefits for the poorest in society, the welcoming of refugees. And if we ignore these things and confine ourselves to a privileged vision of faith where we look after me and mine and us and ours, then we too, like the rich man, may find we have turned away from Jesus and his dawning kingdom. And forgive me, but I find myself doubtful that a political rhetoric of spreading privilege and trickle-down economics, which does not also systemically address those systems that further benefit the already super-privileged, has anything more than very limited practical application. But if we can learn to hold lightly to our possessions, if we can learn to be generous with our wealth and our privilege and our power, if we can learn to follow Jesus wherever he calls us, then maybe we can learn what it is to be good with money. Maybe we can, by the grace of God, find our place in the dawning kingdom of God. Where the poor find value, where those who are enslaved are led to freedom. Or as Jesus put it, where the first are last and the last are first. So we'll have a few moments of silence as we reflect before God on what he's saying to us today. Let's spend a minute so that we can be still, so that we can become present to this moment, to those around us, to ourselves, to God. Be still and know that I am God.
Be still and know. Be still. Be. Compassionate and loving God, we thank you for the many gifts that you've given us as a church. For your faithfulness to this expression of your body over so many decades. And we thank you for this church in all its parts. And for each other, the gifts you've given us individually to build up the body. We thank you for Simon's teaching from your word this morning that challenges us and provokes us to go ever further and deeper with you, to be your disciples and to live out that calling in this place and time. Jesus looked at him and loved him. We thank you, God, that you are always looking at us and loving us. We thank you, your love is unconditional, yet your love is not sentimental and changeable. It's a love that is a passionate love and won't leave us unchanged if we are willing to follow you. He went away sad because he had great wealth. How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Loving and compassionate God, help us to search our hearts as we hear these hard words of Jesus regarding wealth. Help us to hold lightly onto wealth and possessions if we have them. May we not be possessed by them, but rather learn to be generous in what we do with them. Help us to take the words of Jesus seriously in the Lord's Prayer when we ask, your kingdom come on earth, as in heaven. Help us to commit ourselves to the task of bringing in your kingdom of justice and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom that is both now but not yet. And there may be some of us who are experiencing economic insecurity and debt, especially at this time of pandemic. Help us to be compassionate to each other and to trust you to meet our needs. We thank you, God, for justice, for, for the justice uh, and faithful, sorry, God of justice, for the faithfulness of past generations at Bloomsbury, for the time when the church was founded to bring the wealth of Bloomsbury next door to the slums of well uh, that were once here. We thank you for the current expressions of that same commitment to bring in the kingdom of God. For the church's involvement in London citizens, as we campaign with them and other churches, for all aspects of equality and justice in this city, for affordable housing, for fair wages, for climate justice. And we thank you for the church's support for the homeless and for Bloomsbury's ongoing commitment to asylum seekers. And we pray for Sheikh as he awaits uh, a decision still on his future. And we thank you for Fatima and Amina and pray for them for their language learning and integration. 
We pray for the wider context, Lord, in which we find ourselves in the world. We pray for the G7, uh, following the G7 meeting, for a more generous commitment to supporting developing nations, particularly in the vaccine rollout, and for the many nations devastated by COVID still, for Brazil and many nations in South America. And we pray that, uh, that for, for Nepal, um, following on focus there at the Baptist Assembly, and we thank you for the many expressions of support and donations and prayer that came from that. I bless all that are working there to bring relief and a rollout of the va uh, vaccine across all parts of that country. We pray for international uh, situation. We pray for the new Iranian president, for peace and justice in Iran, for wisdom for President Biden and his administration in reaching out to resolve key issues in relation to nuclear weapons development in Iran, for Afghanistan as it faces the withdrawal of US and UK forces and an uncertain future for Israel as um, the new prime minister takes control. Um, we pray for justice for Palestine, For Ethiopia, where there are new elections, we pray for a peaceful resolution to the war in Tigray. For other countries like Peru, with its current election, may there be a, a peaceful transfer of power to whoever is successful. Here in the UK, we pray for justice from our government. We thank you for the successful vaccine rollout but we pray for a wider vision by the government in so many aspects of life here. We pray for Bloomsbury, for those in our congregation facing uh, difficulties and the need of prayer. We pray for Elsie, the nursing home in Westminster, for her continued recovery from her recent fall. We thank you for the way in which you've helped us during the lockdown and for the ways that the church is now emerging, for the services that we are able to have for all who work on that technically to bring it to us. We pray for Peter H, his mother, who is still frail and for, for her and Peter. And we continue to pray for Jackie as she grieves Bill's death. And we continue to pray for Dave and Sandy, Sally and Jenny, and Michael's wider circle of friends. God, thank you so much for all that we have here at Bloomsbury. Help us to go now to live and uh, follow you and to seek to bring the promises of Jubilee into the world around us as we follow you. Thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Lord of all hopefulness and joy, receive our gifts of money given in gratitude for all that you have given us. Lord of all eagerness and faith, receive our efforts and our labours as we offer all our days to you. 
Lord of all kindness and grace, receive our homes, our hospitality, and our relationships as we live your love into reality. Lord of all gentleness and calm, receive our whole lives from birth to death as offerings of peace, giving for the renewal of the world. Amen. And now a closing blessing. May the blessing of God who holds all things, loves all people and forgives all sins be with us today and always. Amen. <laughs>